You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Teaching of the Master by Brother L.G. Sargent Part 4 The Heavenly Father Matthew 6, verse 9 Our Father, which art in heaven. In the Old Testament, Father describes the relation of God to the people whom he redeemed. As with so much of the most significant language of the prophets, the word has its roots in Moses. Is not he thy Father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? In Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Nor is it a mere coincidence that the idea of fatherhood is found in the context of the verse in Deuteronomy 8, which Jesus quoted in the temptation. He treasured the passage in all its meaning. Through the knowledge that man lives by the word of the Lord, Israel were to come to know God himself, and to know him as a father who chastens his children in love. The theme is carried on in the prophets. When in Jeremiah the Lord says, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn, the context offers a striking example of what this fatherhood means. It shows that in the end of their history, not only will Israel be physically regathered, but they will be spiritually restored. For they shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. God's parental love is expressed throughout their history in a divine education which leads Israel through sorrow and repentance to a new spiritual life in his kingdom. A remarkable verse in Isaiah seems to foreshadow the prayer by linking together Father, Redeemer and Name. Doubtless thou art our Father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledgest not. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is everlasting. Isaiah 63, verse 16. All these speak of fatherhood in a national sense. For it was as a people Israel were redeemed, as a nation they were constituted in covenant with God, and as a people and a nation they shall be restored. Only Psalm 103, verse 13, anticipates a more personal use of the relationship, and that only in a simile. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. But here also redemption is in view, for the Lord whom the psalm praises is he who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. 
The psalmist theme is the restoration of men and women to God. With the coming of the Lord, the term takes on a new character. Only in John is it used more often of God than in Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, the expression, Your Father, points the contrast between the children of God and the world, and in the very act calls on the children to bear witness of the Father to the world by their lives. The term marks also their entire dependence for all their needs on him who knows the fall of a sparrow. As their father he holds them in his hand, and whatever may in his providence happen to their bodies, he will not suffer one hair of their heads to perish. All this is carried forward in the invocation, Our Father which at the same time declares the bond with one another. One is your Father, all ye are brethren. Yet it is a remarkable fact that Jesus never joins himself with the disciples in the expression, Our Father. All through the Gospels he maintains a clear distinction between my Father and your Father. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of my Father. And only those who are in a state of correspondence with his will can enter into it. The same doing of my Father's will is the nexus of relationship to Christ himself. The truth of his messiahship is revealed but to Peter by my heavenly Father. Christ alone is the way of approach to his Father, who has delivered all things unto him. Men's destiny will be determined by whether Christ confesses or denies them before my Father. For every plant which my Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. He will come in the glory of his Father. Even when he speaks of joining with them in fellowship, in drinking the fruit of the vine, it is my Father's kingdom. And to those who, having shown their love for the least of his brethren, have shown it for him, he says, Come ye blessed, not of your Father, but of my Father. In all this we have a foundation for the doctrine of the Father and the Son as it is unfolded in John's Gospel. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. Even in the place where, after his resurrection, Jesus calls his disciples his brethren and speaks of God as their father and his. He maintains a distinction which is more apparent in the original than in the English. Go unto my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. The definite article used before father in the first instance is reproduced in the interlinear version. I ascend to the Father of me and Father of you. 
and God of me, and God of you. Jesus gives the term Father a new value, not through some spiritual genius of his own, but because he alone can fully reveal God as Father. As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. It is because he himself is Son that he can give the right to others to become sons, for he alone can show the full meaning of sonship, and therefore of the fatherhood. And just as Christ shows the fullness of sonship by obedience, even to the death of the cross, so God shows the fullness of fatherhood by bringing his only begotten to the cross and beyond it to resurrection. The Father indeed chastens his Son with the discipline of divine love. It is because God is the Father of our Lord that he made him perfect through suffering. And therefore the fatherhood of God is revealed precisely at the point where it seems most hidden, where Jesus cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But Christ was made perfect through sufferings, not only for his own sake, but in order that through him many sons might be brought unto glory. And therefore the cross reveals the fatherhood of God, not only for him, but for those who believe on him. For them God is Father, because he is Redeemer. He is the Father that bought them through the gift of his own Son, that they might become sons by adoption. Whether for the literal or the spiritual seed of Jacob, the essence of his fatherhood is to be found in the divine act for them, which is described in the metaphor of purchase or redemption. The death and resurrection of Christ is therefore seen as the climax of the twofold revelation of God as Father indicated in the words of Jesus, My Father and your Father. At the same time, the cross reveals the demand which God's fatherhood makes on all who will be sons, the demand of the love which perfects them, the demand which is ritually represented by burial in water into Christ's death. It can hardly be doubted that Paul refers directly to the use of the prayer, naming it in Hebrew fashion by its first word when he writes, God sent forth his Son, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. A similar allusion in Romans is connected with the same thought of sonship by adoption. Romans 8, verses 14 and 15. Our Father is therefore a memorial of God's redemptive act, and it stands at the same time 
for his reaching forth towards men through the Holy Spirit, so that he may dwell with the humble in heart. That reaching forth is accomplished through the Word, which is the Spirit made manifest, and through Christ, who is its embodiment. Father, therefore, signifies the indwelling of God in human lives through Christ. As the Master said, I in them and thou in me, that we may be made perfect in one. Yet the very phrase which declares the most precious intimacy of God with man declares also that he is hidden from man. He is our Father, which art in heaven. For these words imply very much more than the bold fact that God's spirit being is focalized somewhere in that fathomless space, which in relation to earth-bound creatures is the heavens. They bring home to us that he whom we can call Father is the High and Holy One that inhabiteth eternity. Height, loftiness, exaltation are physical terms, but they are the only language in which we can speak of a spiritual reality. That he is in the heavens is a fact, but it is also far more a symbol of the truth that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. That no man has seen God at any time is not only historically true. He that dwells in light unapproachable is not merely, if we may so express it, physical fact. These are facts implying profound spiritual truth the truth that God is hidden from man by his own light, hidden by the very nature of his inviolable purity. While our Father reveals the Lord who is Redeemer, which art in the heavens, declares his separateness, and both aspects of God's relation to men are portrayed in the cross. For here is one who is the gift of God's love that men may not perish, while Christ's death is his own act of obedience. It is nonetheless God's redemptive act which declares his fatherhood for those who will receive it. God has provided the Lamb. But because Christ hangs on the cross as the representative of sin-stricken humanity, there has to be in that hour a withdrawing from him which brings the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This withdrawing is an essential part of his sacrifice, for it testifies to the separateness of God, who is so exalted above man that he must remain hidden from the eyes of sinful flesh. The antithesis which underlies the simple words of the prayer is brought into the fullest light by the dreadful realities of the cross and is reconciled in the resurrection. Yet there is still another side to this thought. For it is this very exaltation of God above man which makes possible what we may call 
the spiritual miracle of divine forgiveness. It is not in human nature to forgive, nor can we supply any merely logical grounds why God should forgive. But it is precisely because his thoughts are as high as the heavens above human thoughts that the call comes to seek the Lord who will abundantly pardon the penitent. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And so the words in which the prayer are addressed to God declare how close he is to us and how infinitely far off. They show that he who makes his dwelling with the humble is the very same as the one who inhabiteth eternity. And he who is exalted above all height has a father's compassion upon his children whom he draws to himself. Part 4. The Holy Name. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9. Hallowed be thy name. It is said of this high and lofty one that his name is holy. That name is not merely a verbal description which can be thought of as a kind of property or appendage of him who bears it. The name is God declared and God is the nature which the name reveals. When, for instance, it is said that his name is everlasting, the meaning is not that because he is undying a name must always exist as an appellation for him. It is that the name is eternal, because it is the expression of the eternal God, and holiness is the essential quality of that eternal name. The radical meaning of the term holy is separate, and its prime use in Scripture is to gather up into a single world all those qualities of God in which he is other than man. I, he says, am holy. Other usage is subordinate to this. A place, a mount, a tent, an altar, a bowl, or a firepan is not holy for any quality of its own, but because God has made it his. So also with a nation or people, but with one vital distinction. Those who have minds of their own are called to show that they are his by their acts. 
they are summoned imperatively. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Isaiah uses a parallelism which shows that God the Holy is as distinctive a divine name as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Isaiah 5 verse 16. That is to say, the nature embodied in the name shall be made manifest. The holy shall be made known as holy through his acts of righteousness. The adjective holy sometimes stand alone as a synonym for the divine name in such a way that English translators feel compelled to supply the noun one. An example is in Isaiah 40 verse 25, where it is chosen with marked appropriateness to emphasize how incomparable and unique is God. To whom will he liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Some thirty times in Isaiah he is so described, usually the Holy One of Israel. Closely associated with the holiness of God is his glory, that awe-inspiring effulgence by which he says that the place where he meets Israel shall be sanctified. The two ideas are parallel in Leviticus 10 verse 3, where Moses acknowledges that the holiness of God demands that he shall be honoured by service of his own appointment and not of man's devising. This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. The same twofoldness which was found in thinking of the Father in the heavens is apparent also in his holiness. He is at one and the same time separate from man and very near, a devouring fire, and yet the God who forgives sin. And these are not antithetic qualities, but are included within the one quality of holiness. This is brought out in a remarkable passage in Hosea, where God declares that because he is holy, he will not destroy the people and the city whom he has loved. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. And I will not enter into the city. Hosea 11 verse 9 He is not man, and yet he is in the midst. He is entirely other and exalted, and yet he is among them. And for that reason, because of his very holiness, he refrains from doing what his very holiness might seem to demand. He withholds from destroying them, not only because he is merciful, but because he is holy. His thoughts indeed are not men's thoughts. God will sanctify his name when he fulfills his purpose 
in the restoration and salvation of his people. Because for their sins they have been captive and scattered by his judgment, his name has been profaned. The nations have said in scorn, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. And so, for his holy name's sake, the nation shall know that he is the Lord, when, he says, I will be sanctified in you before their eyes. This demonstrates one aspect of the term to sanctify or to hallow. It is to make him known as holy, to exhibit before men the quality of holiness by which he is unique and unchangeable and utterly other than unredeemed man. In the other aspect of the word's meaning, God is acknowledged by men as holy. This acknowledgement is never a matter of words only but the recognition in their lives of the demand which his holiness makes. It was in this sense that he said to Israel, Therefore shall ye keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you. Leviticus 22, verse 31 to 32. In the day of Israel's restoration, he will be hallowed in both senses of the term. Therefore thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, when he seeth his children the work of mine hands in the midst of him. They shall sanctify my name, yea, they shall sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall stand in awe of the God of Israel. Isaiah 29, verse 22 to 23. The verbs are the same as in Isaiah 8, verse 13, that for to dread or to stand in awe, being used in this particular form only in these two places. Those who rely on God's word sanctify him by their belief in his abiding holiness, and in the day to come that holiness will be so made manifest that it will be known and acknowledged by all the world. The experiences of Jewish history had given a particular content to the idea of hallowing the name. In Maccabean times, many suffered death rather than violate God's law by offering or partaking in profane sacrifices. Such martyrdom was a sanctification of the name. In a far deeper sense, Christ sanctified himself throughout life and in the end glorified the Father by his final declaration of God's righteousness when he obediently submitted to death on the cross. His sacrificial death was a supreme sanctification of the name. With these considerations in mind, we may turn to the first petition of the prayer. Granted that we rarely believe God to be all that the invocation, 
Our Father, which art in heaven, declares him. What more fitting, what more inevitable, than that we should first of all pray for the day when he will be known as holy and as Father by every living creature. Does not love with all the heart, soul and mind generate above everything else an intense desire for this universal recognition of God? This would be the natural result if we mean wholly what we say. But we are bound to admit that here at the threshold the prayer imposes a great test upon human nature. For the holiness of God is the supreme expression of his reality, his utter independence and transcendence of man. And the petition therefore requires us to examine ourselves to determine not only whether we believe in God as Father, but whether in any real sense we believe in Him at all. Men may accept the proposition that God exists in the same way that they believe that things equal to the same thing are equal to one another, or that the circumference of a circle is approximately three times its diameter, but such cold assent will bring no yearning for his name to be hallowed. Worse still, God may mean for men no more than a personification of their own ideas of right and goodwill. In that case, God is for them the dream of an ideal. They retain the dream because life would be rather more drab if it faded just as life would be duller without the occasional beauty of a sunset. Yet, doubtless, they could live well enough if they had to in a climate where no sunset was ever seen. Such a God is really subordinate to themselves. And if God depends on men, they may violate every principle of goodness he is supposed to embody in order to defend their ideal. This tendency to subjectivity in men's ideas of God has been markedly increased by the modern emphasis on his benevolence at the expense of all other divine qualities. A God who is conceived merely as a personified kindliness serves only to fulfil the needs and desires of men. Such a God is deprived in men's conception of him of the qualities of holiness, majesty, righteousness, justice and judgment, the very qualities which reveal his transcendence. If God is thought of merely as a convenience, it is not men who serve God, but God who serves men, and a God who thus becomes dependent on men will inevitably fade into a myth. He will become for modern men just what Gilbert Murray described the Olympian deities as being for the Greeks of the first century. Not gods in whom anyone believes as a hard fact, but gods of half-rejected tradition, of unconscious make-believe, of aspiration. Belief in God in modern England has in large measure declined to this level. The extreme example is a man who asked if he believed in God said, 
I don't believe there is such a thing. But it's a good thing to have it instilled into people so that there's something there if the man needs it. This evaporation of any belief in God as an objective reality is the inevitable result of thinking of him first as the personification of men's own ideas of goodness, and secondly, as one whose sole function is to give men what they want. Even professing Christians may profess the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet have so little real belief in God that they are not drawn together to think upon His name. If we are slack in attendance at meetings for worship and study, God and his Christ are not sufficiently real to us for their name to have compelling power. On the other hand, we may attend regularly, we may do the things we are supposed to do, and more definitely, perhaps, refrain from doing the things we are supposed not to do, and yet not believe. All this may be convention, a respectable habit. We may be active in organising and in ecclesial business, because such activity suits our temperament, and yet not believe. We may be diligent in research and keen exponents of doctrine or prophecy, and it may be no more than an intellectual hobby. We may even find outlet for a naturally energetic and kindly disposition in good works, and yet not believe. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. And the first element of love is an intense assurance of the reality of the object loved. We do not love a dream. That is only a kind of self-love, like the fabled Greek who fell in love with his own reflection in a pool. We cannot love a convention, a respectability. That is only a refuge for dried-up souls who by running in a groove can evade the need of loving. We do not love a hobby, however much we may like it, because a hobby in itself is only an expression of our own energy, mental or physical. The fact is that we cannot love God unless we know him to be holy other than ourselves. And then we can say with the psalmist, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 It is true that, Hallowed be thy name, is a prayer for the fulfilment in the future of something which only God can accomplish. An end which he has declared rests upon the certainty of his own being. 
as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. We know that he truly lives, that he who is is also the one who is coming. Does prayer for that day imply that its accomplishment depends on our prayers? Clearly it cannot. What we do when we pray, hallowed be thy name, is to identify our desire with his, to say that the end for which we long is his purpose, not our own. The ambition which we cherish is for his glory, not our own. We declare that we look constantly and passionately for that day, come how and when it may in the working of his wisdom. But the hallowing of God's name cannot really be our desire for the future unless it really moulds our present. He had made Israel holy by redeeming them out of the land of Egypt for his own possession. Therefore he required them both to acknowledge his holiness and to make him known as holy. And the means of so doing was by obedience to him. The Apostle Paul says to the converted Gentiles at Corinth, But be ye washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. They who are sanctified by God must sanctify God by showing forth the character of the Father who has bought them. The name which they bear is a glorious and fearful name, we read in Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. And that name is sanctified when those who fear the Lord think upon his name, Malachi 3, verse 16 and reveal the fruit of their thoughts in their lives. As Christ sanctified the name upon the cross, so disciples will sanctify the name when they obey his command, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. When Christ is perfected by resurrection, the name of the Father includes also the name of the Son in whom he is manifested, a truth illustrated by a remarkable phrase in Peter's first letter, Sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. Peter is adapting Isaiah 8 verse 13, which he has quoted in the last words of the previous verse and he boldly applies to Messiah the words originally used of the Lord of hosts. But his context also recalls the sermon, and he may, by a double allusion, have the first petition of the prayer in mind as well.
part four, chapter five, the kingdom and the will, Matthew 6, verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so also on earth. The kingship of God is eternal and universal. The Lord is the true God and an everlasting king. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. To the inhabitants of the earth he is king of nations, a title used in verse 7 of the same chapter, and, according to many manuscripts, in Revelation 15, verse 3. This conception of God's sovereignty is a pervading thought in Jeremiah and is reflected in Revelation in the not infrequent use of almighty or omnipotent. The very fact that God sends judgment upon Gentile nations implies his sovereignty over them. These prophecies witness to the truth declared to Nebuchadnezzar that the Most High ruleth is governor, in the kingdom of men. Yet though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, it is also true that in a future day the challenge will go forth, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The possession is his for ever, but a day will come when he will visibly enter into it. And so in the Psalms, the kingship of God is mainly spoken of as future. Psalm 93 and others which follow it in the fourth book combine the idea of a definite divine act of entering upon kingship with that of the eternal character of the kingship. The Lord reigneth is rendered by J. E. Macfedian and others as Jehovah hath taken his seat on the throne. And the psalmist continues, Now the world stands firm, the emphasis marking a contrast between the now and time past. But the next verse shows that the act of entering upon the throne of the world is only one aspect of everlasting kingship. Thy throne is established of old, Thou art from everlasting. Yet in Psalms 96 to 99, the expression, The Lord reigneth, is clearly prophetic. There are then two aspects of the kingship of God, the eternal and the future. And the first includes the second, as the universal includes the particular. In the same way, while all the earth and all its inhabitants are God's, he chose Israel to be his own purchased possession, a kingdom of priests and an holy nation, in order that among them his sovereignty might be open and avowed. He is therefore, in a special sense, King of Jacob. And he says to them, I am the Lord your Holy One the Creator of Israel, your King. He has chosen them as his witnesses in the earth. But now there is no longer a nation, a land, a system of law and worship, 
welded into one whole as the kingdom of God. And its restoration depends upon the return to earth of the Son given to sit upon David's throne, as it says in Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. As God already reigns unchallenged in heaven amid the praises of the angelic host, so also he must reign on earth. Therefore to pray, Come thy kingdom, is to recognise that God's rule, however real, is not yet manifest in the earth, but that it shall be manifested in a future day when he will openly enter upon his reign. That reign is not yet public, but it will then be published and proclaimed, and even the outward form of human dominion will be swept away. The verb come is in the point tense, precluding the notion of gradual progress and development, and implying a sudden catastrophe, as declared in the second of Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. What is it that we pray for when we use this petition? Later in the sermon, the Lord draws a contrast between the Gentiles with their consuming anxiety for material needs, and the disciples, for whom these things take a subordinate place because their main thought is filled with the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In its context in Luke, this saying forms part of a sustained contrast between light and darkness, reality and appearance. Men with a single eye to the word of God live in reality and are filled with light. But if the light in men is darkness, how great is that darkness? As Christ says in Luke 11, verse 34 to 36. From Cain onwards, the darkness in man has opposed the light and persecuted those like Abel who lived in the light. Yet the saints need not fear, even if the men of darkness slay their bodies. The only final reality is the mind of God, and men cannot destroy the future of those who live in his purpose. The kingdom stands for the reality of God. It is light against darkness, the abiding against the transient, reality against appearance. The material world is real enough as an aspect of the purpose of God, but life and its needs in the present order of the world are the shadow. God and life in him are the substance. The saints of God will not so grasp the shadow as to lose the substance. To desire God's kingdom and righteousness is to desire the day when all nations whom he has made shall come and worship before him, when truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. For righteousness shall go before him and shall make his footsteps away. Psalm 86 verse 9. It is to desire that his reign and his righteousness, like his holiness, shall be known and acknowledged throughout the earth. This desire, if it is anything more than empty words, is a desire that we may serve his purpose. 
if we look for his sovereignty to be manifested in the future, then we must acknowledge that sovereignty now. We must live under his reign. It is in this sense alone that we may rightly speak of a present aspect of the kingdom of God. But it is an aspect reflected back from the future. The future kingdom is the governing reality, and the reign of God on earth can be a fact in our present only because it will be a fact in the world's future. While, however, to desire the kingdom merely as an end for ourselves would not be to desire God's kingdom but our own, it would at the same time be a sham to think we can desire the kingdom impersonally, caring nothing whether we ourselves attain it. That kind of cold altruism is a hollow self-complacency and remote from the spirit of the word. If in any real sense we desire his kingdom, we desire also that we may share in it. And God himself looks forward to the inheritance of the kingdom by individual men and women foreknown to him. And this thought leads on to the last petition of this first strophe of the prayer. Done be thy will. To prepare is an act of will, and therefore when the kingdom is inherited by those for whom he has prepared it, the will of God will be fulfilled, will be accomplished, will be done. Towards that fulfilment the divine will has been working throughout the ages of the human story. The wisdom personified in the book of Proverbs declares, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was, when he gave the sea its bound, that the water should not transgress his commandment, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then was I by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his habitable earth, and my delight was with the sons of men. The stately language of the English version partly conceals a bold poetic figure, so intimately is the eternal wisdom associated with God that it is pictured under the metaphor of his nursling or foster child. The Revised Version adopts an alternative interpretation of a word of many possible meanings and renders it master workman. But the Authorised Version accords better with the verb used for rejoicing. This usually describes derisive laughter, but in the present context it can only mean an abandonment of joy, a sportive, childlike exuberance. The Jewish version therefore reads, Then was I by him as a nursling, and I was daily all delight, playing always before him, playing in his habitable earth, and my delights are with the sons of men. It is a poetic parable of divine joy in looking to the end of his purpose. And where the wisdom exists to foresee that end, there is the will to effect it.
the twenty-four elders in Revelation declare that all things were created through the pleasure or will of God. Worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power, for thou hast created all things, and by thy will they have their being and were created. Revelation 4, verse 11. The end towards which that will works is to be reached through an instrument, and he is the one who delights to do the will. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the roll of the book it is prescribed to me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. And Paul, quoting this verse in Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 10, indicates the purpose on which the will is set when he comments, by the which will we are sanctified. Jesus himself declared it in so many words when he also used the psalmist's term. For I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that every one that beholdeth the Son and believeth on him should have eternal life. In Ephesians, the working of the divine will is the central thought out of which the whole theme grows. Paul writes, as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to those whom God has foreordained to adoption as sons, according to the good pleasure of his will. He declares that God has made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, and that in Christ we were made a heritage, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. Paul shows the end when he prays that they may know what are the riches of God's heritage in the saints, and he shows the meaning to that end when he adds, and what the exceeding greatness of his power to us were to believe according to that working of the strength of his might which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the power in action. Here is a remarkable assemblage of terms, almost exhausting the resources of language to describe first the divine intelligence and desire which conceives the end, wisdom and understanding, purpose, counsel, good pleasure. Secondly, the will to pursue the end, and thirdly, the power to attain it, power, strength, might, working, worketh. And the object of this ineffable concentration of the mental and moral and active qualities of God is to sum up or gather together in one all things in Christ. This is the will of God to unite the whole creation under the headship of Christ. 
In other words, to reconcile a world unto himself, a world in which all things will be made new. And it is for this we pray when we say, Thy will be done. These words form the strongest and most active petition in the prayer. It may be their use by Jesus in Gethsemane, which has led many to associate them with mere resignation to misfortune. But when Jesus prayed, O oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. He was not passively suffering the inevitable. He who had a will of his own while submitting his will to the active will of God. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Knowing that this will for the unity of all things could only be accomplished through the cross, towards the cross he steadfastly set his face. How often the cross proves the true interpreter of the prayer. The first three petitions are bound together in one framework between two references to heaven. Our Father which art in the heavens. As in heaven, so on earth. Those last words qualify equally the petitions for the name, the kingdom, and the will. All have a present accomplishment in heaven, and all are referred to a future accomplishment upon earth. In each one the disciple who utters them identifies himself with the purpose of God, and acknowledging, nay, desiring, that purpose for the future, he claims it as governing his own life now. Simple as the words are, and easy to be said by the humblest saint, there is no height of divine wisdom or depth of divine knowledge which is not comprehended in the thoughts of this first trophy of the prayer. Teaching of the Master by Brother L. G. Sargent Part 4, Chapter 6 The Essentials of Life Matthew 6, verses 11 to 12 and 14 to 15 Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The first of the group of petitions, which are more directly for ourselves, recognises physical need as the basis of spiritual life. 
In Sheol, where there is no remembrance of God, and none can give him thanks, there can certainly be no fellowship with him. And where there is no life, there can be no growth. Therefore the prayer acknowledges our dependence on God for the very elements of that existence which is the foundation of all our consciousness, and therefore of all our knowledge, faith, love, and hope, therefore of all chance of developing character fit for God's kingdom. This simple view is not always accepted, for the greatest linguistic controversy to which the prayer has given rise has revolved for many centuries round the word rendered daily. Does the expression mean bread for today, bread for the coming day, bread of subsistence, needful bread, or continual bread? Or are we to carry it right out of the realm of the material and understand it as spiritual food, the food of eternal life? That the last-named view should find many advocates is not surprising among those who start from the postulate of the immortality of the soul. The fact that man is dust-formed, living soul, returning to the dust, alone provides true ground for understanding this petition. The difficulty is that the word occurs only in the two records of the prayer, and nowhere else in Greek literature. Oregon in the third century thought it was coined by the apostles. As Oregon was presumed to know his own tongue better than anyone later could do, his statement that it did not exist before was generally accepted. It did not occur to commentators that Oregon might have been too academic to know the Greek of the marketplace. In recent years, however, much study has been made of fragments of papyri from Egypt which reveal the use of colloquial Greek near the first century AD, a vernacular much modified from the classic Greek of an earlier age, and a common tongue in use among all the varied peoples of the Roman Empire. Adolf Diesman has been able to record the finding of the words ta episiusa in a papyrus from Fayum, which he described as the remains of a housekeeper's book. This expression, he said, corresponded with the Latin diarrhea, which occurred in a similar list of household requisites in a Latin wall inscription in Pompeii. Both words probably signify the amount of daily food given to slaves, soldiers and labourers, and probably usually allotted a day beforehand. On the ground of this research, Diesman says, The strict meaning of the prayer is, Give us today our amount of daily food for tomorrow. There is a striking parallel to the idea, though not to the term, in Luke 12, verse 42. Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? It is precisely for such supplies in due season that the member of the household of God asks in prayer. 
we ask to be saved, not only from starvation, but from continual uncertainty where the next meal is coming from. For in that state it is beyond human nature to retain a quiet mind, and we dare not challenge such a strain on the flesh we know to be so weak. Nor, on the other hand, may we beg for a distant security or assured wealth when grace is sufficient for us. We only ask for the coming day. Can then those who happen to possess this world's goods join equally in this petition with others? Yes. First, because all stand equal as brethren before the Lord, praying not only for themselves, but for one another. And secondly, woe betide any if they forget that rich and poor alike depend on God for their daily needs. Wealth is largely a social fiction, a turn of the stock market, a collapse of currency, let alone a Marxist revolution. And it may vanish in a day. A shower of bombs and the most solid possessions can be destroyed. Modern wealth is not less but more vulnerable than ancient forms which suffered the slow attack of moth and rust. Ye know not what shall be on the morrow. Have not the words of James gained new poignancy for us in two world wars? The rich man, therefore, has as much need to ask as the poor, and he may only ask for his portion in due season, as a household servant. All he has beyond that is an added trust from God to be used in love to God and his neighbour. From the first need of all life, the prayer passes to the basic need of spiritual life. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Men cannot live before God apart from his forgiveness for without it they cannot be in fellowship with him, and without that fellowship they cannot ultimately live at all. And they cannot be given the forgiveness of God, nor can they genuinely accept it, unless in their own contrition of heart they are willing to forgive. For God to forgive the unforgiving would not only be contrary to his righteousness, it would be a moral impossibility. The unforgiving spirit is a sign of the unbroken heart which does not know its need, and like hard-baked clay will allow mercy neither to flow out nor to flow in. Once again, the prayer searches human nature to the very core, making demands on those who will repeat it, before which they stand abashed. We know that we need not so much exposition to tell us what it means as the power in frail flesh to carry it out. The term debts, however, opens up an illuminating train of thought to which the way has been pointed by Dr. Thurtle. The law provided for remission of debt in the Lord's name at the very end of every seven years when every creditor that lendeth aught unto his neighbour shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbour or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release, Deuteronomy 15, verse 2. Servitude was also limited by the seven-year period. 
and seven such heptades led to the year of jubilee with its general proclamation of liberty and restoration to family ownership of land which had been sold. The economic and social life of Israel rested on the principle that all land, the basis of wealth, was vested in the crown, that is, God, and was held upon a tenure which, by forbidding freehold sale and limiting the terms of leasehold sale, was designed to maintain the distribution of land in family holdings. Linked with this remarkable system of land tenure was the periodic release from debt. Both were parts of a single economy which, had the law been faithfully observed, would have prevented social inequalities by keeping wealth widely distributed. And this unique solution of a problem which still baffles the wisdom of men was only possible because it rested on a moral principle, that what they had was not their own, but God's. Illuminated by that truth, the economy of Israel was the only one in the world to enshrine among its fundamentals the principle of forgiveness. This principle Jesus carries over into the realm of spiritual life, and he illustrates it by the parable of the unmerciful servant, in which the debt the servant refuses to forgive is so paltry, and the debt he has been forgiven is so overwhelming. We turn to the cross once more for the supreme example of the meaning of the prayer, that cross from which the word is uttered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Peter, fiery Peter, reflects his Lord's thought in saying to the Jews, Brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. When we use this petition, we ask God to pass by our indebtedness to him as in the year of release, in such manner that the account can never again be presented for payment. And we ask it knowing not only the magnitude of the debt, but the majesty of the divine creditor. For two other terms are used as synonyms with it, which show the nature of our indebtedness. The petition is the only one on which Jesus directly comments in the context of the prayer in Matthew, and there he speaks of trespasses. The same word is used repeatedly by Paul in Romans 5, but not as the offence, so also is the free gift, etc. And also in Ephesians 2 verse 5 and Colossians 2 verse 13, in the expression, dead in sins. In Luke's version of the prayer, the petition reads, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Debts, trespasses, sins are therefore all used to describe the relation in which human nature stands to God and from which it needs release. And yet those who pray in these terms do not come to God as unregenerate sinners. Granted the one great remission when they take on themselves the name of Christ, 
They still need, in the frailty of human nature, continual forgiveness for shortcomings. But they can only ask it as the reborn who know and acknowledge God's law, the law of the Lord's release. At the same time, God's forgiveness is not simply a wiping clean of the slate. If it were, prayer would be immoral, a mere incantation to bring about a magical result. And we need to be continually wary of the pagan conception which would reduce it to such a level. Repentance is the recognition of the need for change within ourselves and of the divine love which can effect it. To ask forgiveness is to lay ourselves open to the cleansing fire of God's grace, that it may burn up the chaff. The psalmist proves the nerve of it when, after praying for the blotting out of transgression, he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. God binds us closer to himself by our very weakness. We must needs depend on his grace, not only to bring us into his fellowship, but to maintain us in it. By repentance and renewed effort we grow in grace, rising on stepping stones of our dead selves. But his forgiveness is the necessary condition of that growth. The Pharisaic mind that does not know its need of forgiveness does not know its need of God. It is therefore cut off from the very source of life and dead while it lives. God cleanses the heart by contrition, and if the prayer does not directly ask for our hearts to be made pure, it is because the thought of the psalmist is included in the petition, Forgive. The act of praying for forgiveness demands an understanding of the mind of him who forgives. When we throw ourselves on the mercy of God, our pride, our self-sufficiency, our self-assertiveness are broken down in the knowledge of our need and of his pity towards them that fear him. Do we re-erect those thorny barriers when we turn to our fellow men? Or do we reflect towards them some gleam of his mercy and compassion? It has been said that the Christian doctrine of forgiveness is so drastic and so difficult, where there is a real and deep injury to forgive, that only those living in the Spirit, in union with the cross, can dare to base their claims on it.
The Teaching of the Master by Brother L.G. Sargent Section 4, Chapter 7 Deliverance from Evil Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The words might be those of a timid child in faith, if not in years, standing on the brink of the adventure of spiritual life. At once thrilled and tremulous, even in the grip of the Father, the little hand shrinks as the sense of the vastness and power of the world into which it is venturing almost overwhelms the childish heart. Yet the petition is unerringly placed at the climax. It is the last stage in the education in prayer which has been carried forward step by step. The child, spiritually or physically, will as like as not be confident in its own self-sufficiency, will be foolishly venturesome. The words are baffling to undeveloped minds, but the last three petitions imply the breaking down one by one of the defences of the inner self. First prayer for bread is a confession of dependence on God for physical life and a recognition that what is received is only a slave's allowance, not something possessed in our own right. Secondly, prayer for forgiveness confesses dependence on God for the very condition which makes fellowship with him possible and requires us to reflect the sunlight of his goodness upon others. And finally, prayer that the leading of God may be away from temptation rather than into it is the overthrow of self-sufficiency's last refuge. It is the admission that we are not strong enough to court trial. God leads, but where? Sometimes into positions where we are tested, and if the testing comes, then, says Jesus, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. We desire to be made perfect. Does it not follow that we should desire to be tried? Is it not the logical conclusion that we should pray, lead us into temptation? It might be, but for one fact. Such a request would reveal a self-sufficiency more destructive than any temptation from outside. That is precisely the quality which the prayer calls on us to abandon. These words form one of the threads running through the account of the Passover meal and Gethsemane, and it is from those dark hours that they receive their fullest light. Simon, Simon, says the Lord, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy strength fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. But to Simon Peter this solicitude for him seemed needless. 
Was he not a zealous disciple who had forsaken all to follow the Lord? Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Was there a note of expostulation in his voice as well as assurance? How little Peter knew what humiliation the next few hours would bring him. I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt deny thrice that thou knowest me. Before the next morning came, Peter's self-esteem was in ruins. In his love for his Lord he had dared to follow nearer him than any save John, but in so doing he had run into temptation, and he had failed at the test, not of prison or of death, but of a word, a taunt, with the crowing of the cock, the knowledge of his failure rushed in upon him, and a heart-broken man went out and wept bitterly. How deeply ever after Peter would have known the meaning of those words in the prayer. Had not the Lord dwelt on them time and again that night? When he was at the garden, he said, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And they, who had joined in Peter's asseveration of valiant loyalty, all forsook him and fled. How much they too had needed the Lord's intercession in the hour of his own agony. You who declared your own strength fit for any test, what, could ye not watch with me one hour? The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. But the highest illumination is given to the words once more by his own example. He who had taken upon him that which was prescribed in the role of the book, who knew that it was binding upon the Christ to suffer, who knew that he was a polished shaft, strengthened by the Spirit for the work of redemption, even he did not say, Lead me into this trial for which I am come. Far more acceptable to the Father were the words that welled up from his heart. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That he could desire the cup to pass from him is at once the deepest mark of his humanity and the sublimest height of his spirituality. It was the evidence of his kinship with ourselves that he had a desire of his own which needed to be set aside. An angel could not have prayed in those words, still less a co-eternal God the Son. Only one, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, could use them. They are at the same time the utterance of perfect humility. He does not say, bring me to this shame and suffering. I will face the worst. But prays even at the last moment, that if some less dreadful way of redemption is possible, he may be spared the cross. How striking the contrast with Preta's bravado! How far beyond any fancy to invent or tradition to evolve such spiritual insight! 
So this last petition is the final and most searching confession of dependence upon God. Let not evil have us in its grip. Maintain us in that fellowship with thee, for which thou didst make us, and to which thou hast brought us. Paul has a notable echo of the prayer, which at the same time expounds it when he writes, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work, and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom. With this petition we may be compare a prayer in the tractate Berakot in the Talmud, which asks to be delivered from evil man and from evil act, from evil impulse, from evil companion, from evil neighbour, and from Satan. Here the impulse, Yetzer, is clearly distinguished from Satan, who becomes, indeed, a needless appendage to this comprehensive list of evils. Leaving out Satan, therefore, we have a very interesting illustration of what the evil might mean to a Jewish audience. Indeed, see Taylor in the standard edition of the sayings of the fathers conjectures that the expression in the prayer means yetzahara, the evil impulse. This may narrow it too closely, but it is undoubtedly nearer the truth than the rendering of the revised version text, the evil one which was condemned as unjustifiable even by scholars who were themselves believers in the personal devil. Already in the sermon the evil has been used for the diabolic tendency of human nature, a. as experienced in oneself, and b. as manifested in others in their conduct toward us. Here in the prayer the term covers, in the widest sense, that evil having its source in man's corrupted will, which is the adversary of God and men. As the first section of the prayer turned upon the command, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, so the last section enshrines the principle, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. The petitions for bread and for forgiveness in particular lay stress on our common humanity and the claims of all men upon us. But the plural in all three petitions declares them to be uttered both with and for the whole body of the saints. Throughout the prayer, just as we do not directly ask for purification, so there is no direct request for eternal life. Both are implied, the one as a corollary of forgiveness, the other in a twofold way. We pray first for the coming of God's kingdom, and secondly for our continuing fellowship with him. That is, we pray to be identified with his purpose and to abide in his love. Eternal life for ourselves individually will follow as a consequence, but it is significant that it is in the prayer only by implication and not by direct statement. Seek ye first the kingdom, says Jesus truly, but he excludes mere self-seeking in the name of the kingdom. 
We are not investing in an endowment insurance payable in the afterlife. We are looking for the perfection of our adoption as sons of God, the fullness of redemption with all that it involves. Here in the pattern prayer, we have the truest education for that end. Our shepherd leads us to still waters that restore our souls, for from these springs we may drink of eternal life. The doxology for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory for ever. Amen. Is omitted practically in all modern editions and versions. The textual evidence, however, is not so conclusive as this would imply, and it is worth quoting the cautious words of Dr. Scrivener. It is right to say that I can no longer regard this doxology as certainly an integral part of St. Matthew's Gospel, but, notwithstanding its rejection by Lachman, Tischendorf, Tregellis, Westcott and Hort, I am not yet absolutely convinced of its puriousness. It is vain to dissemble the pressure of the adverse case, though it ought not to be looked upon as conclusive. The words have been curiously subject to textual variation, a few cursive manuscripts even adding to glory the words to the Father and the Son and to the Holy Spirit, a patent interpolation. But it is unlikely that the prayer would be given without some closing ascription of praise to the Father. And it is possible that this clause was omitted by some manuscript in an effort at harmonising the text with Luke's account of the prayer. The familiar words are fitting and beautiful as an acknowledgement of the universal dominion of God of which the future kingdom on earth will be a particular expression. And it is worth noting that they render quite inappropriate the translation evil one in the words immediately preceding. While there can be evil, there can be no evil one if God is the universal king.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.